Welcome to another episode of the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And most of you know by now, I myself was on the cover of Time Magazine at age 18 as one of the first in history to speak out nationally, publicly, loudly, boldly as the victim of what was then coined date rape. Before my case, people knew about stranger rape, but not so much known offender or being raped by someone you knew, trusted, even a relative or a friend. And I decided to speak out for the many decades of my life, changing laws, policies from coast to coast, campus to campus, and around the world. And the Dear Katie podcast is my latest effort to continue our journey as survivors to shout it out, speak it out, and change the world. And I'm so pleased in our episode now, we are joined by Sandra. Sandra, could you please introduce yourself and tell our survivors and listeners a little bit about um, how to care for themselves? Yes, uh, and I'm Sandra Miles. I've had um, uh, my own career with supporting um, victims and survivors, and I am so appreciative to have the opportunity to be here with you all today. So sometimes the discussion in our podcast can be difficult to hear especially for survivors of trauma. We encourage all of you to take care for your safety and well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Sandra. And our episode today is with, I'm just going to start with Tenny. I love the, even your name, Tenny, and I wanted you to introduce in your own words, you know, who are you, where are you, and what are you doing? Could you share your brief bio with our listeners? Absolutely. So my name is Tenny Eppinger. I am originally from small town Manchester, Tennessee. I went to undergrad in St. Louis at Washington University of St. Louis, and there I got my ancient studies degree before moving to Atlanta, Georgia where I went to culinary school and got a degree in culinary management. I now live in Los Angeles, California, and I've been here for almost eight years. And I'm currently um, working in the hotel management industry. Um, fabulous, Teddy. That that was so well said. And um, I only want our listeners to know a couple things about what you said, Teddy. Um, St. Louis um, is kind of smack in the middle of the country, as many of you know, and watch you. I always say wash you, Tony, because I've lectured there. Oh, um, good. <laughs> I have. And a lot of people don't know that it's one of the few mostly Jewish schools yes. in outside of the Northeast. So um, I think that's important to say. Do you agree? I do agree. I do agree. Yeah. yeah, it's really important because, you know, I think, you know, we have so many diverse listeners and their religious and faith backgrounds are important to all of us. And Wash U is a really special place having been there. And then going um, to outside of Atlanta, as I called it when I lived there. <laughs> um, I grew up there for 12 years myself um, in the burbs. But, you know, Atlanta has grown a lot in the last few decades. And it's such a, you know, diverse and welcoming, uh, I think, community for many now. Um, it was not always so. And now you've gone out, out west to L.A. And that's another community that you can't go wrong, although you can 
avoid the traffic. <laughs> Even though they have eight lanes every which way and up and down, I'm always like, oh, I have to land and go give a speech. And how can there be eight lanes of humans in cars driving on this many beltways every which way up and down? Yes. <laughs> That's just my narration of where you just said you're from. But, you know, our, our survivors, our listeners love to hear, you know, next is kind of how you come to your microphone with us right now in this moment. You know, what was the, you know, experience that led you to want to be on our podcast? Absolutely. Um, Well, like most people listening and and like you as well, I am a survivor. Um, When I was in culinary school in Atlanta, unfortunately, actually, I was preparing for midterms and I was coming home and I was actually kidnapped at gunpoint um, by an unknown gentleman. He then took me um, back into my home and he repeatedly sodomized and raped me. Um, Fortunately, I was able to live through the evening that I didn't think that I would survive because I did think that he was going to kill me, but he left and I did decide to press charges immediately. Um, Fortunately for me, I had a very supportive uh, Sandy Springs police department that took every possible step and they were able to capture him pretty quickly. He ended up being a serial offender. I didn't know this at the time. um, So I was his last victim and I'm very proud of that. We did go to court and although it took two years of a lot of the rigors that you deal with when you do actually press charges or seek justice, um, I was able in 2009, so the attack was in 2007. So in 2009, we finally were able to get him to take a plea deal um, so we didn't have to draw out any further time with that and he is still currently serving his prison time. Your experience is more unique to our listeners. I'm almost certain you are the first on our podcast who has described what is truly a stranger, right, Tenny? Mm -hmm. Yes, I had no knowledge of him, had never seen him before. Right. So, you know, as I'm sitting with our listeners, because What's really fascinating to me in thinking and sitting with all of all of us collectively, you know, there's not to me, there's never been a ranking of badness, right? How bad was your rape? (laughs) And I never ranked them. But I think that so long we've lauded and been able to um, get behind dads protective fathers don't want their daughters to be raped by strangers, right? That's a stereotype. And I think, you know, it would be really helpful for you to just, you know, share how you would speak to those who are assaulted by someone they knew and were blamed for liking the person, letting them buy dinner, dressing sexily. Like, how would you just share that with our survivors listening to you to connect with you, to connect with your experience, if you don't mind? Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, I am also a survivor of acquaintance rape. Um, so I did have that experience in undergrad. Um, and so I think that the first thing that I would say to a survivor of any type of sexual violence, that it's not your fault and there was nothing that you could have done to change that. So regardless of what you may have had on, um, what you may have been doing at the time, 
who you may have been with, any of those things, letting your guard down, if you will. Um, none of those things give anyone a right to take something from you that you didn't give them consent for. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, as someone who came from a small town and then went to college and, you know, I, I enjoyed going to parties and that sort of thing. And I always had a lot of male friends. And so um, I was also an athlete and, you know, you become sort of like that um, around the way girl, if you will, that, you know, I have brothers. And so you, you hang out with guys and, you know, sometimes you're like, you know, like a sister, if you will, or, you know, like a cousin. And, and so you, you tend to let your guard down because maybe you felt comfortable around someone. Um, and I think I really just want to go back to the fact that there's nothing that you could do that could warrant someone to take something from you and that you can say no at any time, even if maybe you were thinking of, you know, being intimate with a person and then something made you feel uncomfortable. If you said no or, or did anything that indicated that you wanted to stop, you had that right to do so. And they didn't have the right to take that from you. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to go back to, um, when you started, when you described, um, the assault and the process of pressing charges, because I have worked with a lot of, um, survivors who decide not to, uh, report and in making the decision not to report, uh, for those in their family or friend group who know of what they quote unquote claim happened, and sometimes even in the support community, um, there can be a lot of frustration or doubt begins to form when a person decides not to report because the assumption is like, oh, well, if something bad really happened to you, then you would want to get justice. Uh, but for a lot of survivors, they are keenly aware of everything that goes into attempting to get justice. And justice doesn't always even look like justice by the end of it. So could you, for our listeners who maybe don't have that experience or have no real knowledge of what that process looks like, can you explain um, to the degree that you feel comfortable or are willing to, what was it like to actually go through the process of prosecution? Absolutely. Um, and you've, you've, already touched on so much of it. It is a very difficult thing. I, I don't want to sugarcoat and give listeners an idea that it, it was an easy process. And, and even initially, my first thought was not to report. Um, he had taken my cell phone and I just so happened to have a land landline in the house as well. But I called my sister because that was the only number I know. You know, we use cell phones, so you don't know numbers. And she threatened to call the police if I didn't. So I called the police and then um, they showed up with uh, to my house, like within minutes, I guess. And, you know, I will say one of the, the more traumatizing parts after the fact, once you, once you do report, and I know this is why a lot of survivors don't, is the post-traumatic rape exam. Um, it's very invasive and you are not allowed any contact with anyone except for um, the nurses that are performing the exam, the detectives as they're taking your statement. So um, since we talked about my parents being in Tennessee and this happened in Atlanta, so that's about a three hour drive. So my best estimate is that that exam took 
at least three hours or the exam and the interrogation, if you will, took about three hours or so because my parents had arrived to the hospital while I was still giving my statement. And so we had to finish that process before they were even allowed in to see me, which was difficult for both of us. From there, it just, it was kind of a whirlwind. We, I mentioned, you know, there were other survivors involved um, and only, um, we were only, or I say we, but the uh, court system um, was only able to get one other victim to be on this case with me, one other female victim anyways. Um, And so we together went back to the same police department and we had to do the police sketch as best as we could so they could have an idea of who he was. Um, I did mention that they caught him very quickly and they did catch him that same day, uh, which was very good for us, I guess. But then that meant the process started pretty quickly, or at least so I was thinking that this would end, you know, it'd be kind of a a fast thing. But unfortunately, um, and I don't know if this is everywhere, but I do know that in Atlanta, the court system, the calendar for court cases, there's a backlog, a giant backlog. And so even if you do get on the calendar, then you may not be seen that day. And and I went to court at least 15 times. I may have lost track. And this was not even the trial. This was just going to court to try to get on the docket. Um, and each time he was there. So that was also very traumatic because I'm there. And even though I had the support of my family and, and very close friends that that knew about what was happening, to be re-traumatized every time by seeing my rapist there in the court, looking at me, looking at my parents, watching my parents react to seeing that. Um, And again, this is before even a trial has started. We're we're going through all of this, the different changes in the DAs or the judges. Each time that happens, you had to have another appearance. Um, My rapist, even at times, he was displaying uh, instability mentally. And so then he would have to go and get tested and that would require another appearance. His family was there. His family would approach me and try to talk to me. That was very uncomfortable for me. Um, my mom was very much against that. Uh, it was also uncomfortable to have my parents in the courtroom as well, you know, thinking about them hearing anything that happened to me, that that would be difficult for me and difficult for them. Um, And it was just a very long process. So it's like you're being re-traumatized over and over again. Again, this was like a two-year thing. Yeah, I I feel like every everything you're saying it just like peels back a different layer of it's like trauma and then a new trauma and then a new trauma and then to have the courage and the wherewithal to move forward and re-experience it. Um, almost every time. I, I heard a little crackle in your voice, but for the most part, you, you've been, you know, fairly steady in in describing this this horror. Um, what do you attribute to your capacity to, or your willingness to to relive this for the purpose of helping other people? As far as the the strength, I think I was thinking. <laughs> So this might sound kind of weird because uh, it was a repeated attack, right? So this happened, the attack itself was several hours and he was in my home. So there was a lot of conversation, which may be weird to people, but I guess in my mind, I didn't think that I would survive. So I was uh, really recording mentally 
everything that was happening just in case the the off chance that I would. And he became comfortable with just sharing things about me not being the only one. And um, so in my mind afterwards, kind of knowing my own previous history where I didn't report, I didn't want another woman to go through that because it was the most like degrading experience. And I just, I couldn't deal with someone else with, with him being able to do that with someone else. Like not when I had an opportunity to at least try to stop him. And then as far as like with my mom, if we want to add another layer of of trauma, my mom is actually a survivor and I knew that. And so I didn't want to withhold this particular experience from her or my dad. Well, I appreciate you um, even taking this time with us because every survivor story is powerful, but the way that you are um, really being vulnerable and sharing this um, with for no personal gain uh, is uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and I, you know, agree completely, Tenny. The other thing I, I think is really important. I'm sitting with you going to the police as I did myself 30 years ago. But I went into the police station with a lot of, even not known to my own self that they were privileges. I had white skin. I had an FBI agent dad. My grandfather was a police chief. I never was in trouble. I was fearless because I thought, because I was fearless in my self-righteousness, Tani, if that self-righteousness, like I deserve, there was not because I was rich, I was not rich, but I had this truth in my heart and said I was right and I was not scared of defending my truth. Like I was not scared. No matter what question, the, the scare for me was not answering questions from a police officer. The scare was like, yep, I am going to lose all the money I have. And to quote you almost exactly, I did it for the same reason you did. I don't want him to do it to anyone else. And that was my sole motivation, Tenny. But when we walked into our own respective police stations, we did so carrying different psychological understandings of the ramifications of what that would mean for each of us. Absolutely. Right? Yes. I had no parent support. I would I would get uh, this. This was me. Like this is going to mess up my acumen for grades. I will have no money. Okay, my parents will hate me. I'm a terrible non-virgin. I've forsaken God. Like, I was already in hell, basically. <laughs> and I, I, I would have no money. But you know what? I still knew I was smart. And even if I had no money, I was still willing to sacrifice. I always see it as a, a balance. And I think, Tani, we think about this. Like, for tonight, we never talked about this. When we as survivors have to decide to prosecute, there is 
a balanced scale psychologically that we go with and we put everything on the table and not everything is weighed the same, nor do we come into the balance the same. And I did the same thing I think you were doing in those moments. Like what do I have to gain or lose and what's most important and how is this a hundred pound weight or a five pound weight? And um, right, so you and I, and I think all of our survivors sit tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm saying something different. You know, all of our survivors sit with our silence, our truth, and our catch the guy to make sure he doesn't do it again or catch the person, right? Catch our perp. And there is a cost. There's a cost for us personally, and there's a cost for us in so many different dimensions. But each of us could attribute each one of the, I, I kind of envision it this way, Tenny. You know how I, I don't know where, I never had this kit, but there's, I, I kind of see a balance beam with different things that you can pick up and put different types of weights on one side and some way more than others. And if we labeled each one, like, Tony, you and I are not, I'm white, you're black. And so race has a weight. Core, religion, you know, faith, worry about ramification, bullying, worrying about not having a job, worrying about money, like all of it is kind of a balance scale. And you made a brilliant choice in how to make that weight happen for you. And I, you know, I'm listening to our survivors all the time. They're like, so many have applied to be on the podcast or thought about it, Tenny, and they're scared. They're scared to tell their truth and they need to think about that balance. And I, I think where I land on our conversation is when you think about all the things you put on that balance scale, what were the biggest ones? And then I'd like to, Sandra, talk with Tenny about healing after that. But I'll give you the floor after... I just asked a huge question, Tenny, but I kind of visualized it. Like you and I are weighing out stuff and Sandra too. We're all survivors. Like we're weighing out stuff. And how does it look like for you, Tenny? You know, I mean, I think that is a big thing, Katie. You know, you, you think about, okay, if I come forward and, you know, you've seen TV and that's kind of all really I had to go on. I also didn't have the... Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of trepidation, you know, from dealing with the police, right? And, you know, having to have those conversations also with men. Everyone that I talked to was a man with the exception of my victim advocate and the nurses. And this is, it's still also invasive. You're repeating the conversation multiple times. So even even in the emergency room, I'm thinking like, do I really want to go forward with this? Because I'm going to be asked this question of what happened so many times um, to potentially discredit me. Right. And now they're going to look into my past and see like, you know, did she cross every T and dot every I and, you know, find any, any little thing they can, can use to discredit maybe my testimony or someone else's testimony, um, towards this person, um, you know, who, yes, should have due process, but, Ultimately, it's going to come back to a judgment towards me and basically, did I deserve it or did I ask for it? And I had to really think about, do I want to even 
put myself out there like that, where they can ask me those questions where I feel even more degraded or even more traumatized at even sharing my story. And then also when, if I share it, will I actually get justice? You know, I mean, you, you, it, once you do the post-traumatic uh, rape kit, um, will they actually find DNA proof to link it to the perpetrator? You know, that's one thing you think about, you know, then there's, it's, it's, again, it's like, how do you prove it without there being a witness? Um, so all of these things that you kind of have to think about before and during, because again, you're being asked all these questions by different people, the same thing, instead of them maybe like looking at the same story, they ask you the same thing. They want to make sure that the details line up every single time, even though this is a very stressful situation, you may get a detail here and there wrong, or maybe you forget something, or maybe just in the trauma, it, it's hard to re- recall it every single time. Um, and so you have to think about that. But I think for me, I still, i <laughs> I've always been kind of stubborn, if you will. Um, I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> I'm a Capricorn. And so I, that is definitely a trait that I have gotten from both of my parents. I will say that. And so I, I don't know, something, I think it helped that there was someone else there with me that had had the same unfortunate experience. And we both. But, but, but Lears, like, what if you didn't have them? Sit with our survivors who don't have that. Could you tell them, keep going? Um, I think I would look back to, to the me that was in undergrad that didn't say anything. And this time I wanted to use my voice. Um, you know, as a former athlete, I've always persevered through challenges. And, um, you know, kind of even thinking back to my mom, who also didn't report, you know, it was, it was my chance to maybe save someone else. Again, I, I really didn't want anyone else to go through this same thing. Um, and I, I guess that was sort of my promise to myself that if I actually was able to live through it, then I would go through whatever I needed to, to prevent him from doing it again. So Katie, I do want to um, ask a question because you've, you've mentioned, Tenny, you've mentioned a couple of times that um, you chose not to report when you were in college and that that experience is what um, made you very confident that you wanted to report uh, in this particular situation that you've been describing. Can you um, describe a little bit about your mindset when you chose not to report, not to not in full detail, I'm not asking you to rehash, but um, was explain, uh, you know, what went into you deciding I don't want to do this or it's not worth it um, because I, I have my um, assumptions that I'm making, but I would like to uh, hear from you and why you decided that it was not uh, a, a good option for you at, time, at the time. I guess in the uh, most succinct way, I'll say that there were witnesses and um, I didn't think that anyone would take my word over theirs. Okay. Thank you. And, you know, along that line, and Sandra, you could maybe wordsmith this better, but I think a theme we have not discussed, Tenny, um, is sheltering those we have alignments with. It's asking survivors to choose between their own souls and self and body and cause and it's it's horrid. It's just horrid. And so many of us have to make those those choices. 
You know, it's almost like, you know, we go, we can go to wars, historic wars, where someone had to choose between, you know, sheltering a human in their basement or giving them up, right? So, you know, the, I, I want everyone and our survivors, especially listening, we sit with you and how, how hard this is. Tony, you've been brilliant ex- explaining this hardship. And I think if we could maybe dig in a little bit more on how do we come to a solace in our soul? Because you did. Like I sense at some point, Tony, you've come to a conclusion that you like the choices you made. Yes. Um, you know, it, it did take several years. Uh, I think first, um, I will say I was not one of the people that was open to therapy. You know, I, I came from a culture where you don't talk about certain things um, that happen outside of the home, if you will. And I just wasn't comfortable with talking to a therapist until 2018. So we're talking like 11 years later. I mean, sorry, 2019. So 12 years later. Um, but I did other things to kind of keep my mind busy. I took up marathon running and that helped to with the stress and to get out of my own thoughts where I could just exist and, and be, and not think about, okay, I've got to go to, to court again this week, or I have to do this sort of thing, but I could, I could just be and feel happy and, and do something for myself that like didn't require anyone else. Um, and, and that really was helpful for me. And then I think the next biggest thing in my mind that, that really made me say, okay, I need to take a look at maybe how I'm healing. If I'm really healing my sister, she actually had her own traumatic experience um, with rape and, and almost being killed. And it finally hit me. This was after I moved to LA that I couldn't stand by and do nothing, if you will. Like I wanted to do even more than just going against my perpetrator. I wanted to help other survivors. I wanted to find ways to help survivors heal and to end this culture because it just continues. Um, Tenny, thank you so much. Your whole journey and experience has been so helpful and honest and open. And the last thing I have is so often we have five senses are hearing us, smelling our, you know, all of them. And they're triggers. And they take us instantly as survivors back to a dark, vulnerable, hateful place. Um, and, you know, all of us have different triggers. But how have you dealt with your triggers? And what, and what, what have they been most, most keenly, keenly sensed? You know, what, what were the worst? I think one of the worst that still exists, uh, you mentioned smell. Um, so I, I left out this topic, but um, during the attack, he made me take a shower and he cleaned me. And at the time I used Caress <clears throat> shower gel. And to this day, I can't even get around that smell because it'll bring it all back. Like I, I can still smell it now just thinking about it. Um, so I never use Caress. <laughs> particularly that one. Um, but just in general, I avoid the, the that brand. Um, as far as 
site and, um, you know, that sort of thing. I, I immediately, my dad, yeah, sight and sound. My dad moved me immediately out of my apartment, like the, the next day. Um, you know, he showed up as a super dad and got the, the apartment to break that lease. Um, I did have to do a lot of work on as far as like my own PTSD and, and fears. Um, and, and that just took many, many years of, you know, talk, whether talking to people or, um, you know, reading things that, that may help me to realize like everything that I think I see is not true. Um, you know, and just becoming a little bit more vulnerable with people that I could trust, uh, to talk out like my feelings. Um, you know, when I started marathon running, that really helped from a physical standpoint, um, with even like with body image issues that I had because I was wanting to, uh, it helped me to get more healthy because after the attack, I, I think I was just wanting to completely change my body from the body that attracted this man to a body that looks completely different, you know, so disassociating myself from the body that was attacked to being a new woman, if you will. But running helped me to, to look at my body in a healthier way um, where it was a body that is able to accomplish these amazing things like completing a marathon. And so in order to do that, I need to feed it properly and, and do things like that. So I was able to kind of like reconnect to myself and to my body as a positive thing instead of this negative vessel that I was viewing it as. So I know that um, the where you are now and, and uh, the, in the next iteration of you taking your power back is in helping others reclaim their own power can you tell us a little a little bit about how you are facilitating that? Absolutely. Um, since moving to LA, I've been kind of on a journey of what would that look like? How could I actually help someone else, like legitimately, other than just someone that I knew? <clears throat> I wanted like a, a larger scale. And so, but I didn't know the right steps to take. And then just over time and my own journaling and that sort of thing, I actually got the idea that I wanted to create a nonprofit for sexual assault survivors. And um, I still kind of struggled with like how to put those pieces together, but it's kind of funny how when you, when something really is your purpose, how little things kind of come into play for you as the time comes, like as you're ready, I think. Um, and, and that is what started happening for me. I, I met an attorney that that's what he does is help, people with nonprofits uh, or established nonprofits. And, you know, randomly through my job, we met and then we ended up talking more and he was asking me like, no, what is it that you really want to do? And it put me on the spot and I shared with him. And so, you know, we started that process and this has now been four or five years ago or so. And um, as of, I think also in 2020, no, last year, maybe last year, we finally got the approval from um, the IRS uh, for the 501c approval. Um, and so I am using that organization to help provide resources for other survivors, um, to help to empower them, to advocate for them, um, to show, to share my story with more people, to, to show people that you can take your power back. You can bloom in power more importantly, and that there are others out there. You're not alone, whether you choose to report or not, it doesn't diminish your value 
you could you could choose that maybe that's not for you, but for survivors to realize that they have someone out there that cares about them, that's willing to support them, that, you know, is in this journey with them and wants to see them thrive. Thank you so much. What's the name of your nonprofit? Yes. So it's Sisterhood of Survival. So when you think of like SOS, uh, my idea was to eliminate the need for the distress signal for rape and sexual violence. <laughs> oh, perfect. Um, and thank you so much, Tenny. So as we close out this episode of another edition of Dear Katie, thank you so much, Tenny, for joining us, sharing your story. This has been um, an, another Dear Katie to End Sexual Violence Support Survivors Share Stories. And Sandra, um, what else can you share with our audience? Um, well, we are grateful to all of you who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You also can help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. Thank you to them and thank you listeners for being present today. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thanks, Sandra. Um, take care all and welcome to another episode. Tune in next week. Thanks. Good night.